Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Aaron Schneider. And I'm Angie Fryermuth. Today we have a very special guest with us for the second time, Mr. Michael Connor, who's the Assistant Secretary of Army Civil Works. Uh, Mr. Connor is the political appointee that oversees the, the Corps of Engineers. And Mr. Connor, thanks for being here today. It is a honor and pleasure to be here for round two. I don't know how we managed to get you on the show again, but it's it's always great to hear from you. And really today, I think we want to reflect on uh, your year. Uh, so you've now been, con- you're confirmed uh, November 29th, uh, 2021, and uh, you've been here a year. We kind of wanted to know, could you reflect on this past year? Uh, tell us what has been the best part of the job so far, um, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the future. That sounds great. Happy to do that, Aaron. I think it's been a highly productive year for the Army Civil Works program overall. I think we've done uh, a lot of amazing things with respect to investments that were made possible by the bipartisan infrastructure law, and then initiating a number of policies uh, that I think are part of a modernizing effort uh, for the Corps, even as we, uh, and I certainly recognize all the tremendous mission responsibilities that the Corps has long had, uh, will continue to carry out. We just want to continue to try and improve on how we carry out that mission and who we do it for. Getting to the heart of your question, what's the best part of the job? What's not the best part of the job? Let me put it that way. I think there's a a lot of things that have been pretty rewarding everywhere from, I think, seeing the Corps of Engineers really being integrated into the administration's priorities, uh, the administration understanding how the Corps and its mission can carry out a lot of the president's priorities. There's certainly the rewarding aspect of the great team I have here in the Assistant Secretary's office and interacting with those folks on a daily basis. So there's a whole lot of things to choose from, but I guess I I would just point out a couple things that really stand out for me. The best part of any of these leadership jobs, I think, are getting out on the ground. So particularly the time spent in divisions and the districts, and I'll give the metrics that I always give the commanders when I meet with them, either in person or virtually, is I think now it's seven of eight divisions that I've now been in and 23 or 24 of the 38 districts. So there has been a good part of the last year that's spent on the ground talking with, you know, the commanders, the deputy commanders, the folks carrying out the work on a daily basis. And I think, you know, seeing and hearing the pride that they have in the work that they do is obviously very rewarding. Getting their interpretation of the priorities that I've set overall for the Civil Works uh, mission, getting their feedback on those priorities and seeing how they're implementing them or have been implementing them in the work that they do is always welcome feedback and very rewarding to hear. So I think in addition and closely related to the visits out to the divisions and districts, the second most rewarding aspect is when we couple that with uh, the events we do with the local sponsors and members of Congress interested stakeholders uh, where get direct feedback from those folks on the value that they ascribe to the Corps' work, the importance of the projects that we're carrying out, or the initiatives. And just three examples recently, mid-Chesapeake we did celebration of the first contract that was let. This is the beneficial use of dredge material from 
uh, Baltimore Harbor that we're rebuilding, barrier islands, uh, islands within the Chesapeake Bay, everything from certainty, from you know, placement of dredge material that that gives the port of Baltimore to the restoration of habitat, to the protection of coastline through the recreation of those barrier islands, and then even you know, creating coastal wetlands and our incremental you know, addition to mitigating the impacts of uh, greenhouse gas emissions because we're building habitats and helping to sequester. I mean, this is just everything, soup to nuts. Just did an event in uh, New Mexico, Espanol project to benefit two pueblos. First major civil works uh, project that's going to solely, or primarily, it has a lot of benefits, but primarily benefit two uh, Indian tribes through the restoration of the Rio Grande floodplain and the you know protection and restoration of habitat and uh, native vegetation that's very critical from a cultural and natural resources standpoint to those pueblos. And then just at a big Everglades meeting, I guess the, the sum of that is in each of those situations, there's always complicated issues. And when you're in the heart of those issues, you wonder, oh, you know, are people really happy with the work we're doing? We get the, through those issues and you step back and you go to these events and you just hear about how uh, impressed people are with the course professionalism, how valuable the work that's being done is going to be for their communities or for the issues that they care about. So uh, you can't beat that for rewarding and best parts of the job. Absolutely. As a former outreach specialist, it is great to have that time with our sponsors and our external people because they're going to let us know how we're doing and then therefore we can uh, make sure that we're meeting their needs and the nation's needs. So um, you've been out on the ground a lot, but that doesn't mean that you haven't accomplished a lot. So can you talk a little bit about what has been accomplished over the last year? Absolutely. I'm always a, a little hesitant, particularly early in a tenure, to talk about accomplishments. So I'm going to recharacterize it as progress. Uh, I think we're making progress on many fronts. I think, you know, getting to where I started from day one, which was right after the enactment of the bipartisan infrastructure law, I think making good decisions and allocating a large percentage of those resources. And right now we've done three work plans and I think we're about 84% of the funding that was made available we've now allocated to specific projects and activities. And so making good selections, uh, decisions about where to invest those dollars to you know, continue to address high risk areas, to try and complete the work that we've started, to uh, bring that economic, environmental uh, return to many communities. That's always been a core set of core priorities, but we've we've also put on that lens that we want to strengthen our supply chains and we want to uh, do innovative work uh, to build climate resilience and we want to serve a broader set of communities and make sure that uh, we're bringing equity into the investment decisions that we've made. So I think that collection, allocating those resources, choosing those projects, getting them on the ground, I think now we've obligated about 20% of those funds or will have by the end of this year. That's a, that's a big accomplishment uh, and progress that the Corps has made uh, that we've all made together. So I'm pretty proud of that, but getting back to my first point, it is just progress. You know, we're in the infancy of some of those projects. Some of those we are trying to complete work that has been ongoing for some time, but we're going to have to keep at it across all the different uh, missionaries of the Corps in implementing those projects. I think, second of all, 
we've got a lot of policies that are in the works as part of the modernizing civil works effort, you know, whether it's being how we do tribal consultation to I will be issuing probably by the time that this broadcast airs new tribal partnership program guidance. We're trying to you know, do a better job, make ourselves easier to work with with respect to tribal communities. That's part of the Environmental Justice Initiative. Issued an Environmental Justice Interim Guidance to the Corps back in March that uh, I think they've done a, a terrific job of bringing on folks to implement that uh, guidance, to do the outreach necessary to a lot of different communities and, and let them know of the programs that we have and the resources we have that can uh, help those communities. Uh, we issued a Drought Resilience a directive I did back at the end of July. I always laugh because laugh about that because within the eight weeks after issuing that drought resilience directive, there was uh, six one in one thousand year precipitation events. So we had the extreme flip side of that in uh, six areas of the continental U.S. So we're working on you know a water resilience a strategy now that encompasses drought, but uh, will be broader given the extreme events that we're uh, working on. And then lastly, in the progress area that I'll just mention is there was just a whole series of issues that have been ongoing for some time that have had certain communities, constituencies concerned about some of the work that we're doing, whether it's the Dakota Access Pipeline, environmental review process, a whole set of issues in the Pacific Northwest and the Columbia River Basin uh, regarding uh, Columbia River system operations, uh, that was long been in litigation. Our use of nationwide permit 12 for permitting activities related to pipelines and, and a lot of linear projects, and, and of course the Yazoo Basin backwater area and the pump. So you know, high-profile issues that have been in place for a long time, and I'm proud of the fact that we haven't ducked any of those issues. We're trying to take them on. We're trying to work through a number of initiatives in each of those areas. In DAPL, for example, uh, where uh, before we released the draft EIS, we took a look at it. We're going back to address some concerns that have been expressed by tribes, other uh, communities, but we still want to get the work done. So we kind of reconfigured uh, with the Omaha district how we would be doing that EIS. I think we've got a good game plan now. We're executing that game plan. It'll be a more comprehensive review, uh, but it's intended to complete the work. That's just an example of you know some of the issues that this office has jumped into in partnership with the core to try and get to some you know resolution, uh, quite frankly, and uh, take them off the plate for the next generation of folks not to have to deal with, hopefully. So you mentioned the drought memo, and then you also briefly mentioned that we have these extreme events. So there has been quite a bit of issues around water in general over the last few months. We've had hurricanes, um, and then, of course, the drought conditions uh, in the West and then on the Mississippi. So can you talk a little bit about how um, you have dealt with these issues and what the Corps needs to do going forward to, to continue to address water resilience? I think this probably goes without saying, but, you know, we just have to be acknowledged that uh, I think the term that I read in, in one of the major newspapers uh, a few months back was weather whiplash. We are in a period where weather whiplash is the norm. Uh, extremes are the norm. From aridification of the West and the dryness out there that's likely to continue at some level, even if they get some, you know, some years that aren't as 
drought impacted as others. Uh, we are moving in that direction. At the same time, we have more significant extreme precipitation events, as you mentioned, and on our coast and off the oceans, those hurricanes are getting more powerful, uh, given the energy that they now have, given climate change. So that's the world that we live in now, and I think, you know, to address that, I always start with, we've got to keep doing more of what we have done within the core, which is always be ready to respond. CORE's role in emergency services, disaster response is a good example. So, you know, we're going to catch up to these extreme events, and I'll get to that in a second, but we've got to be prepared to respond. And from that standpoint, I think, you know, the work that has been ongoing from Katrina to other events, which has led to better coordination between FEMA, the Army Corps, which were a primary contractor to FEMA, that type of whole-of-government approach, uh, bringing in a broader set of agencies, is we continue to need to improve upon that approach that has been uh, working well and going in the right direction over several years. I think Mississippi River drought is another example. We've done this before. We have benefited from some of the actions taken in the past. 2012 was the last very significant drought, similar to this year, where we have extremely low levels in the Mississippi River, and we took out some rock pinnacles there, so we're not having that same issue. Uh, we instituted some actions to get some natural movement of sediment out of the floor, so we're not having to dredge as much because we made some improvements uh, since that time. Yet again, right now, we're in the middle of emergency operations, pretty much. You know, we're, you know, have 15 dredges uh, out in the Mississippi River. We are expending a lot of resources to keep the channel open at these low flows. We're coordinating with Tennessee Valley Authority. We're looking at our reservoirs that we have in the system to try and ensure that we've saved some water for times that are needed to supplement those flows for as long as we can, and hopefully until we get some uh, turnaround in the uh, drought situation there. So those response actions, we need to continue to uh, deal with these situations. We also need to prepare and anticipate. This goes hand-in-hand -hand with response actions preparing for these events and anticipating what is needed to address those events. Some of this is just an extension of what I talked about. So, you know, in emergency response, we now deploy assets like generators to close to Florida when we are expecting, you know, Hurricane Ian to come. We had generators very close to the situation that could be moved very quickly uh, to provide that supplemental power or emergency power that was necessary. So that's the type of preparation and anticipation that we need to do. But with respect to the extremes of water, I guess I'm also talking about things like better assessing risk well ahead of time. Where are we vulnerable and how do we address this? A great example, just uh, within the last couple of months, we released the South Atlantic Coastal Study uh, that had been in, in the works for a number of years, a very robust study looking at specific areas of the coast. I think it's like 66,000 miles of coastland over uh, six states in Puerto Rico, so the territory, and assessing what are the most vulnerable areas now, even given the projects that we have, and where do we need to shore up. So we've got a guidepost now to how to look at and evaluate risk. It's doing that, continuing then to act on those studies, better forecast. Uh, this is how we prepare and anticipate. Forecast informed reservoir operations, uh, which might greatly help in the drought situation, is a great example. We don't do that all on our own. Obviously, NOAA and other 
agencies have a role in better forecasts, uh, but we're a, a significant user. And how do we support the efforts to get better forecasting so we can anticipate these events? That's kind of a second area that I mentioned how to deal with these issues. And then lastly, just adapting and innovating. So we need to have better tools in place as we try and you know, develop projects and actions that will build resilience and minimize risk. And so we want to innovate uh, with respect to tools like engineering with nature. How do we get better performance, better meet demands of communities who want to integrate gray and green infrastructure into the protective measures to address extreme flooding and coastal storm surge, those type of things. And to get those better tools and adapt better, uh, we need to highlight success stories. And we are engineering with nature. We do have some good examples. We need to highlight those and educate folks on how they can use those solutions that have already been put in place and designed in certain areas. And then uh, lastly, we need to continue to have a very robust research and development program within the Army Corps of Engineers to develop these tools and and that's a high on the priority list moving forward. So continue our responses and improving the methods we have, prepare and anticipate better the situations we're going to be in, and then finally uh, adapt and innovate so we can have better tools uh, to build resilience ahead of time. That's kind of my approach. Yeah, that's great. I'm really excited to hear you talk about the innovation, especially, you know, engineering with nature. I think the core has done some innovative things with delivery methods, public-private partnerships, and the new core uh, federal loan program under WIFIA. These programs are new, and sometimes it's difficult for the core or even the public to embrace these types of initiatives. How do you want, are you going to be able to push these types of initiatives out to the field where they become more of the normal go-to solutions than these kind of higher ideas, like how do we operationalize these across the organization? Uh, it's a great question, and I think it gets back to engineering with nature. Even knowing that's a priority coming in, I'm continually amazed at, you know, the number of examples that we have out there already in place. It's not, you know, completely widespread, but there are enough examples and quite frankly, and this gets back to last week when I was uh, signing the design agreement with the two Pueblos in New Mexico, a lot of the discussion from the two Pueblo governors was how they were proud of the fact that engineering with nature had been utilized in some other uh, related projects on their lands, post-wildfire uh, restoration efforts and protective measures that were taken on Santa Clara Pueblo back almost a decade ago. So we've got validators and we've got examples and we need to tell that story and highlight how that's being used and we need to support a broader uh, implementation set of actions. So we need to do that by developing the tools that allow us to select these type of features and integrate them into our projects. And that gets into other things like what we're trying to do with the principles, requirements, and guidelines developing agency-specific procedures. And, you know, I say principle requirements and guidelines and a rulemaking, and I can already sense people's eyes glazing over. And I get that because it sounds so inside baseball-ish. But the reality is 
it's how we evaluate projects and how we can make selections about what project features get authorized and then can we budget, even if it's not the absolute highest benefit cost ratio. So this is the kind of things that we need to do to develop the rules that allow us to move forward with these innovative approaches and integrate them into the projects that we're designing to address the problems that communities are asking us to address. And so they're related. And then, as you pointed out, there's just new tools out there with you. Great tool because it's ready to roll because of the funding already made available. Once we have a rulemaking to implement the program, we're going to be able to issue low interest loans to have non-federal parties take care of the dams that they're responsible for, whether it's upgrading, whether it's just getting back standards so that they're no longer a significant risk to certain communities, or even in some cases if those dams need to be removed because they've gone past their date where they're providing a, a benefit versus the cost that they're imposing on the environment and the communities that they're around. And so we've got resources available now. We can do, I forgot the exact number, but it's well over a billion, several billion dollars worth of projects that we can help finance. And then lastly, public-private partnerships. You know, we've got communities out there who want to use tools like Section 204. This is city, uh, Adams County and Denver, city and county of Denver. We have a flood uh, risk management project, aquatic ecosystem restoration uh, project with them, and they're itching to go. They want to take over the construction leadership there. Uh, we've got the authority to do that. We just now have to create the framework, put that in place, and let them go to it because uh, we've got the resources to help finance the work they want to do there. And of course, you know, Section 408. Uh, I just did an event several months back in California uh, in an area called the Yolo Bypass, which is part of the Sacramento River flood control system, where uh, we just needed a permit, state of California and a private entity doing some restoration work that would maintain the uh, flood risk management aspects of the YOLO bypass, but do it in a much more environmentally friendly way that allows, you know, fish to use that habitat in the floodplain to get back and forth between the river to create habitat that's going to be beneficial for other species. And we weren't the centerpiece of that, but when I went out to do the event celebrating that, the fact that we did our 408 permit and we did it relatively quick, I'll say, was of great, great value to those stakeholders, and they appreciate it. So there's a lot of ways to innovate. Some of this is high-profile stuff that we can do, financing, and some of it is we have to roll up our arms and get into the nitty-gritty policies and change our rules, such as PRNGs, so that we can put ourselves in a position to use those innovative tools. No, thanks. That's really exciting, and you know, innovation is definitely something I'm passionate about. Uh, it kind of makes me, you know, hearing you talk about innovation, I clearly see that as, as a top priority, you know, in the next year and many years ahead. But let's, you know, look forward for the year next year on the job. What are the top priorities that you have for that next year? And I don't think it'll surprise you that the top priorities are probably a reiteration of certain things that we've already talked about. But one of the things we haven't is just, you know, purely the execution aspect of bipartisan infrastructure law or also disaster supplemental. You know, we're very fortunate, I always say, you know, blessed to have the resources that have been provided to implement the projects that are in 
uh, high demand out there, such as the bipartisan infrastructure law, the $17.1 billion that we received. But we've got a lot of work to do and a lot of expectations. So I always acknowledge we've got a lot of resources. We're going to do a lot of good things. But quite frankly, we, we need more resources. But getting to the execution part is, you know, we've allocated that funding. Uh, we're now in the process of getting design agreements in place, of getting project uh, partnership agreements in place, and then moving out with contracting activities. And we've got challenges with respect to that. That takes a lot of work just to do those actions and get on the same uh, page with our uh, local sponsors and, and stakeholders. Uh, and then, two, we have had a certain set of impacts from cost increases given specific supply chain issues, cost of labor, transportation, et cetera. So in some cases, that hasn't impacted the ability to move forward the project. In some cases, it has, but we've got resources available, such as those made by the bipartisan infrastructure law, that we can address some of those cost increases and keep you know, projects on task. And then uh, lastly, we were going to have to make some adjustments with local sponsors and what part of projects are a priority go forward first, what we might have to cost share more of uh, in order to keep the projects on task from a time standpoint. All of the policies that we talked about, whether it's finalizing rulemaking on WIFIA, whether it's PRNGs, whether it's the Tribal Partnership Program or New Tribal Consultation, the work we need to do on the Appendix C regulations to ensure uh, we're doing the right you know, analysis on the National Historic Preservation Act. All those things are works in progress. So. It's a big agenda, and we've got to stay laser-like focused to get those policies and rulemakings done. Lastly, it, it is that innovation agenda. How do we, whether it's through investments, through it's, whether it's through policies, whether it's through telling the story of examples of innovations that work and trying to export that to other districts, divisions, and projects, that's got to be first and foremost in our minds. I just kind of reiterated everything we already talked about, but trying to package it into the recognition that we're making progress, but that's why I hold off on the accomplishment word at this point in time. Well, thank you for that. We are nearing the end of our time together, and so we want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything that you would like to share with our listeners. Sure. Coming on to this position in one once again, I think we talked about this in the, the first uh, podcast that I did. Uh, you know, I had a, a history of working with other departments and agencies, including the Bureau of Reclamation, where there was a close relationship between Reclamation and the Corps of Engineers. And then when I was DepSec at uh, Interior, certainly worked with the Corps in its permitting role because we had to work together. So I thought I had really good familiarity with the breadth of the Corps a mission and the work that it does, and I think over the last year I've come to realize that uh, I had a taste of what the core does, and the breadth of it is so much larger than what I expected. So I think what I want to convey to folks, particularly those uh, who work for the Army Corps of Engineers and carry out the Civil Works program, is I have a better understanding of the breadth uh, of the work that's being done across the core in all of its mission areas. And so I have a, a huge, even more respect uh, for all the great work that's being done. And what I mean is the core is very unique in the federal government. You know, As we work on you know, implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure law 
and we try and move a resilience agenda or an environmental justice agenda, uh, a lot of entities are doing that through grant making. The Corps is one of the last entities that we still do large scale investigations. We do small investigations of specific projects. Then we design and engineer projects to address what we find in the investigations. And then we're a construction management entity. That in and of itself is a very complex responsibility. We operate and maintain some of those projects. A lot of those projects we turn over to local sponsors, but we still operate and maintain uh, a lot of facilities. And then that means that we have to assess and adapt and how we manage those facilities and how we manage those projects that we implemented. Even this morning, I was uh, out on the National Mall uh, with the Baltimore District uh, touring the long-standing flood control project they have to protect Washington, D.C., and basically talking about uh, how we need to upgrade uh, some of the levees there that are well-disguised uh, within the National Mall because we do this in a way with our partners at the Park Service that keeps the integrity of the National Mall together. But it's just a never-ending cycle of building projects, reassessing as our climate changes. We need to re-engineer in some cases. And the Corps is just one of those few agencies that does it all. And then on top of all that, you manage recreation areas. Uh, you are first to respond in any number of disasters. Uh, we continue to be the nation's largest hydropower producer. All of the core mission areas, flood risk management, aquatic ecosystem, restoration, navigation, et cetera. So it's a unique agency. I, I better understand the breadth of it. I, even as I talk about innovation, and modernization, I just want folks to know that I, I'm gradually getting to understand the breadth and the importance of the whole totality of the Corps' mission. I'm the Corps' biggest fan, even as I want to push the Corps forward in certain areas uh, as we continue to adapt and improve uh, the great work that it does for the country. Well, thank you, Mr. Connor. It sounds like you've made a lot of progress in the past year, and we look forward to the progress that you make in your next year. Just thank you for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you. What topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together. Thank you.